Good morning, everybody. My name is Faith Taylor. I'm the director of Children's Ministries. And children, in front of you in the pew, there is a Bible. Looks like this. If you want to pull it out and turn to Romans, which is page 966, we can read together. I will read it as you look at it. Um, Chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Let's read the Word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, Through him, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Faith, and uh, welcome. I know this time of year we may not have a lot of uh, newcomers in our midst. I want to especially welcome you. We're delighted you'd be a part of WCPC with us. If you're exploring Christian faith, if you've been around a while, we're just delighted to have you here. Kids, I know for some of you it's like, oh no, the first Sunday I don't get to go to Sunday school, but we're so glad to have you in our midst, and there is a busy bag, as Tommy said, but I'm going to like loop you back in a couple times during this message. So get ready. I'm going to invite you in with a couple questions. But for the big kids, I want to point out that it's January 8th, which means 92% of all resolutions are broken by January 11th. So maybe you're there, maybe you're not. But I was looking at this this week, and I discovered that there are 10 types of resolutions, the top 10 at least, and here they are. Uh, Exercise more, lose weight, get organized, learn a new skill or hobby, uh, live life to the fullest in some new way, save more, spend less, quit smoking, travel more, read more, and spend more time with family and friends. And notice only one of those ten is about relationships, and yet we rise and fall based on the health of our relationships, don't we? So today, I'm not only going to defy the scope of this list, but I'm going to talk about a relationship that probably is not even in your top 10 list of relationships, and that is a relationship with the church. And as I say that, you may be thinking, well, how do I fit in a relationship with the church? Maybe I'm churched or unchurched or rechurched or dechurched or overchurched or underchurched. Maybe you're church adjacent or church-ish. Maybe you would say church is a great place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. Um, When I say church to you, you may be thinking things like the building or the church as a social club or a great place to gather business contacts or a rock concert or maybe the church is boring or irrelevant or outdated or you may even say hypocritical, judgmental, intolerant. Well, we're going to be in this series together for the next seven weeks entitled 
Dear Church, seven weeks together looking at seven introductions to seven letters to seven churches. And when they say church, what you hear God saying is beloved, treasured, precious, set apart for the world, called to be the vehicle that transports God's new world into our old one. In fact, one of the letters of Ephesians says that Christ loved the church so much that he gave his life for her. God says, dear church, I'm thinking about you all the time. You are precious in my sight. And even as I say that, I know often today the church gets a bad rap. And if I can be just an armchair sociologist for just a second, I think most of us today are suspicious of all institutions as bad, maybe even evil. So you'll hear us say things like, stick it to the man, and that might mean stick it to corporations, or stick it to the government, or stick it to religion, or the patriarchy must go down. Or in Christian circles, we may say something like, Uh, just give me Jesus and the Bible. I don't need the church, which I think is is naive at best and maybe destructive at worst. Uh, Napoleon had this diplomat named Talleyrand, and one of my favorite quotes comes from him. He says, without individuals, nothing ever happens, but without institutions, nothing ever survives. And the church is actually a global institution, multicultural, multi-ethnic, transnational, an institution that feeds the hungry and clothes the naked and empowers the powerless and sows compassion and works justice. And in the very same breath, I want to say, yes, the church gets a bad rap, and often the church deserves a bad rap. And usually when the church goes to bed with policy or or, uh, partisan politics or somehow capitulates and compromises with the culture, that's what happens. The church becomes a mixed bag. And we see this acutely in our own civil rights movement of the 1960s. In fact, the church was somehow the antidote to racism and was complicit with racism. But Martin Luther King Jr., uh, the great civil rights activist, he did not, like we might, discard the church. And in his letter from the Birmingham jail, he summons pastors and parishioners alike to be true to form as the church, to be the church. This is what he writes. He says, I must honestly reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church, but... I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. No, I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who was nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings and who will remain true to it as long as the cord of life shall lengthen. Wow. So I have three particular desires as we get into this seven-week series on seven introductions of seven letters to seven young churches. And here are the desires. One, that our church, WCPC, would know who God is. Two, that we would believe the gospel. And three, that we would practice life-giving rhythms. 
And as I grapple with these three desires, I pray that they would also be an invitation to our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers. And let me just say, while this message is supposed to be mostly about knowing who God is, I can't help but spend most of my time on the gospel for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, the gospel is where Paul, and we'll say more about who Paul is in a minute, uh, it's where Paul starts every letter. In fact, we see it in Romans 1 and 2. He mentions the gospel twice in two verses. But two, the church often goes awry when she falls out of line with the truth of the gospel. So I want to spend most of our time there this morning. Um, Some of you know that I spend uh, two Thursdays a month coaching Bay Area church planters in a cohort. And I've had this realization over the past few years, a sizable percentage of them do not yet fully grasp the gospel. And here's what I mean. If you talk to them about pastoring or about their church, you'll hear things like, I need to work harder, bigger, stronger, faster, better. In effect, to say, hey God, look over here, pick me. I'm working the hardest, I'm trying my best. If I can do enough good, God will reward or accept or receive or love me. So kids, remember I said I was going to invite you in a couple times this morning. I have a question for you. You ready? Would you rather, this is a would you rather, would you rather your parents give you a big ice cream cone right now or would you rather them take you to Mount Diablo, have you hike all the way up to the top and then maybe give you an ice cream cone? Which one? What do you want? Right now. Right now. Of course you do, right? Okay, you can go hiking later, but you want an ice cream cone right now. Well, before there is any earning or effort in our life, there is God saying, I love you. I love you. So my eldest daughter, I remember when I was five or six years old, um, one day I got home from work and she had created an art gallery with all of her paintings and drawings. And she took me by the hand and she walked me around. She's like, Dad, what do you think of this one? Oh, it's so beautiful, Carol. Oh, what do you think? Oh, it's so great. What do you think of this one? And I had the wherewithal in that moment when I got to the end of all of her art exhibits to say, Caroline, these are amazing and they're so beautiful, but you need to know I love you not because of these, not because of what you do. I love you for who you are. So the gospel involves us somehow um, losing sight or losing realization of that love. So how might I define the gospel for us? Well, no surprise to some of you, I went to a mentor, uh, Tim Keller, to arrive at a sound definition, and this is what he wrote, or what he said in an interview. He said, if I had to put it in a single statement, the gospel being it, I might do it like this. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplishes salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin into fellowship with him and then restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with him forever. So do you catch there's, there's two dynamics at play here. There's this individual reality that God is rescuing you, that your soul matters. But there's also this collective reality that God is at the same time restoring the world, that society matters. So if we place this for a moment, place the gospel in the context of Rome. Paul mentions the gospel twice in the first two verses. This is to a letter in Rome. 
what do we find? Well, well, Paul has written this letter probably around 50 AD. He's written it from Corinth. He's probably imprisoned when he wrote it. And it's several years before the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have been written. So don't think that the New Testament Greek scriptures are written chronologically. These letters came first. And that's because eyewitnesses were more credible in that day than the written word because most people were illiterate. So what happened is after the eyewitnesses who had witnessed the resurrection of Christ started dying out, Paul starts writing these letters and the gospels would follow. And what Paul is saying in the context of Rome is that the gospel is not firstly about what happens to us, but about what happens in history. It's a public truth. And not only that, it's offered to Rome as a confrontational truth to the greatest empire of the whole world. And we see this in verse 2 because when Paul mentions the word gospel, if you were in Rome, you would know that that word was connected not to Jesus, but to Caesar's birthday. Caesar's birthday was good news. It was gospel. And in verse 4, Paul refers to Jesus as the Son of God. And if you heard that, you'd be like, oh, oh, wait a second. Caesar is the Son of God, right? And then in verse 4, he goes on to say, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And if you had a Roman coin, it would say on that coin, no, 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 wait, Caesar is Lord. What Paul is saying in the context of Rome is that the gospel is demonstrating and suggesting that your principal allegiance is off kilter. Jesus is king. Caesar is not. If I may be so bold, that's why in America we are not Christian nationalists. Because the psalmist says that the nations are a drop in the bucket. We have an amazing country, but global Christianity doesn't rise or fall on the success of the United States of America. Because Jesus is king. So that's what the gospel is placed in the context of Rome. What about placed in the context of Paul's life? Uh, so we'll be looking at the seven introductions to these seven letters that Paul writes. And in verse 5 here, he says that he or we received grace and apostleship. Now apostleship is the uh, capacity to be an emissary of the truth. So Paul, in the context of his own life, needed grace and truth in the gospel. The truth for Paul was that there was no fastidious commitment to a religious practice that would ever get Paul right with God. So make no mistake, however devoted any one person is in this room, your devotion to a religious practice pales in comparison to the Apostle Paul, right? So don't even try to measure up. But part of Paul's religious practice was his a good Jew, he persecuted Christians in that day. Which is why Paul didn't just need the truth that no fastidious practice would measure up, but he also needed grace, God's gift of life to him. Why? Because he not only persecuted Christians, he became one. And then he became a minister, which meant every Sunday he was serving communion to the fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters of the very people that he had persecuted and killed. So he needed a gospel of grace and truth. So we've seen the gospel placed in the context of Rome, placed in the context of the author of this letter, Paul. What about finally placed in the context of your own life? 
So as we conclude, a couple questions to consider here. One, do you grasp the gospel? And two, has the gospel grasped you? Just a word on each of those. Firstly, do you grasp the gospel? Or another way of putting it, how would you articulate the gospel as it relates both to soul and society? Do you believe, for instance, that the gospel is about God rescuing sinners? Which I know that word just doesn't have much cachet in our cultural context, but sin in Greek, hamartia, is the tragic flaw that brings us down that we cannot measure up, that we miss the mark of being the person that God wants us to be, even of being the me that I want to be. It, it suggests that we're ripped away from relationship with God and we don't actually need self-help or self-esteem. We need rescue. We need transformation. Bono, who is the front man for you too, and by the way, my favorite Christmas gift this year I gave to myself. It was uh, Bono's memoir, Surrender, which is just amazing. I'm about halfway through it because he writes way too much. But um, this, is, this is something he says. He says, it's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. At the center of all religions is the idea of karma, you know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very gospel, very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. That's between me and God, but I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. So do you believe that the gospel is about God rescuing sinners? And also, do you, do you believe that the gospel is about the restoration of all things, not just your soul, but society, that the only hope we have for our world is nothing short of resurrection? Nothing short of resurrection. So, do you grasp the gospel? Second and last question, though, maybe the most important one, has the gospel grasped you? So, you know when you're learning a new language, a language that's uh, maybe not native to you, uh, it's, it's easier to learn a lot of the vocabulary, right? Like you immediately start learning words, but the challenging part is learning the grammar, the syntax, the sentence structures. So we learn gospel words like sin and salvation and God and forgiveness, but the grammar of the gospel is about so much more. So kids, I told you I was going to involve you twice, so second time, end of the sermon here. Another question for you. Have any of you been to Disneyland? Woo! It's fun, isn't it? Isn't it awesome? So imagine if your parents, when they drove you to Disneyland, what if they spent the whole day just driving around Disneyland? <laughs> but you never went into Disneyland. You'd see it, you'd take a turn. Oh, there it is, there it is. Would that be fun? No, that would be awful. 
right? Why am I asking you that? Well, well, God's rescue, God's payment, God's forgiveness is an Uber ride. Nothing more than an Uber ride, a Lyft ride to union with God. In, in other words, the deepest meaning of the gospel is union with God. That your relationship with God is restored. So, finally, in these last two minutes, I'm getting to what I was supposed to be talking about today, which is you can't put God in a box uh, because God defies all of our social constructs and our conceptions of who God might be by being Trinity, this interrelated being. And we could evaluate if the gospel has grasped us by simply asking this question. Do I care less about the gifts of God and the benefits of the gospel and more about being loved by God and in relationship with God? See, that's the Disneyland, if you will. Being reconnected to life with God. And God is Trinity. We can get super philosophical on it. God is the Father. God is the Son. God is the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. Philosophically, it's really difficult to unpack. It's been 2,000 years of trying, so two minutes is not going to help you. But to take it historically, the people of God recognized that God was Father. They contended with God as Father. Then this dude, Jesus, showed up and demanded worship and ascendancy. And they said, whoa, wait a second. This being is somehow God as well. And then the church was birthed and the Holy Spirit came. And though the Holy Spirit's introverted, they still started saying, whoa, this is, this is somehow God too. And so the deepest meaning of the gospel is that we are invited into relationship with the God of relationship. That what it, that's what it means to get the gospel deep into you, to have the gospel grasp you, that you begin caring less about the gifts of God and more about this relationship with God. That's why, as I close, um, Paul concludes his letter to the church at Corinth with this amazing benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You can't put God in a box. God is Trinity, and you are enveloped in a loving relationship with the God of relationship. Let's pray together. God, as we come to this table, would you uh, remind us yet again of the extent of the sacrifice Jesus, you brought us back, you brought us home, and there is this delight and joy that should um, run over and push aside our guilt and our shame as we know our acceptance is not from our work but from your work. Uh, yet would this table also be the reminder that the invitation is not just to be forgiven but to be intimately rewoven into relationship with you. With you. Would this be a moment where we might again abide in that relationship as you are abiding right now in us? It's in your name we pray. Amen.